remain standing for the sermon text, the epistle lesson from Romans 4, starting in verse 6. Submit yourself to God's infallible word. Likewise, David also speaks of the blessedness of the person to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not ever count against him. Thus far the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Oh God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. Oh Lord, our rock and our Redeemer. We ask this for Christ's sake. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> there was once a painter who wanted to paint a mechanic. So he went out and he found a greasy, grubby, grimy wrench turner a prototypical mechanic who spent his days underneath hoods and engines, a guy with third-degree oil stains on his skin as well as his clothes. He asked the mechanic if he could paint him, and the mechanic agreed, so they set up a time. But on the day of the painting, the mechanic had cleaned himself up for the picture. He or for the painting, he had applied a, a bristle pad to the oil stains on his hands and arms. He was wearing brand new clothes. He had cut his hair, trimmed his beard, shaved his neck. Well, the painter declined to do the painting because the mechanic didn't show up as he really was. The painter didn't want the mechanic to cover up the filth before he painted him. We're like this mechanic, aren't we, when it comes to the gospel? We're not sure we can come to God as we are with all of our guilty stains, with all of our shameful sins. We think we need to clean ourselves up first and cover up the filth. Maybe God will take us then. We imagine that the grease, grime, and grubbiness in our hearts needs to be scrubbed down a bit before God will receive us, accept us. But the shocking beauty and the extravagant grace of the gospel lies in Paul's statement in Romans 4, verse 5. There Paul says that God declares the ungodly to be righteous. He declares the spiritually filthy to be spiritually clean. Actually, our filth runs a whole lot deeper than the oil stains on the skin of a mechanic. Our wretchedness doesn't come from the outside and just land on our skin. We produce poison at the core of our being. It goes from inside out. Our, our hearts are toxin factories that are spilling over with toxicity. 
We come into this world deserving God's eternal wrath. The moment we're conceived, Adam's guilt is counted as ours. It's imputed to us. It's considered ours because we are in union with Him. He is our head. And as soon as we're able, it's not like, oh, you know, there's Adam and why, why, am I, why is his guilt counted to me? No, as soon as we're able, we begin adding our sins to Adam's. We're born sinners, and the thing that comes most naturally to us is sinning. As soon as we're able, we begin making our own idols and producing our own toxins. We're just like Adam, but we're also just like Abraham in that sense, to use the illustration that Paul used last time in the first part of Romans 4. Before Abraham came to faith, he was an idolater in the city of Ur. Joshua 24, 2 says, And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham, and Nahor, and they served other gods. So God didn't look down on Abraham and determine that he was a swell guy worthy to be saved. No, he looked down and saw a helpless sinner who needed God's saving grace as badly as any human ever has. God didn't owe Abraham salvation. He didn't, didn't even owe him a chance to turn from his idolatry and trust in God. He didn't owe Abraham a, a chance to respond to the call of God. The only thing God owed Abraham was the wages of his sin, and we know from Scripture that the wages of sin is death. Paul's main point here at the beginning of Romans 4 is that ungodly people are declared righteous from Adam on, from Abraham on. They are declared righteous by faith alone. Not by human effort, not by anything that they bring to the table, that we bring to the table, by faith alone. So cleaning yourself up first doesn't help you get right with God in the least. You don't need to scrub the guilty stains on your heart with a spiritual scour pad before God can accept you or will accept you. God saves unrighteous people, ungodly, to use Paul's word, the ungodly. In fact, the only people he saves are ungodly, unrighteous, wicked sinful, idolatrous human beings like me, like you. He's never saved anyone else. And He's never saved anyone because they cleaned themselves up first. He saves people whose idols are sex. He saves people whose idols are drugs or alcohol. He saves people whose idols are position or power. He saves people whose idols are comfort, the security and leisure that comes with money. He saves people who are stuck in any of those sins listed at the end of Romans chapter 1, which is, of course, just a partial list. And every time he saves someone, every time God declares a sinner to be righteous in His presence, He does it, apart from works, by faith alone. So God didn't save Abraham because Abraham pulled himself up out of idolatrous er, out of the idolatrous mire and rinsed himself off first. Nor did God save David because David was a man after God's own heart. 
In verse 6, Paul says, likewise, David. And so he's going to use David for the same point. Salvation was by faith alone for Abraham, and it was by faith alone for David. Ever since Adam and Eve were kicked out of the Garden of Eden for their sin, for their rebellion, there's only been one way to get right with God. Only ever been one way for sinners to be declared righteous by God. The, the moment Adam and Eve sinned against God, they were guilty before God, and they deserved everlasting punishment in hell. If God had just executed that sentence right then, it would have been perfectly just. And from that moment, there was only one way they could get right with God. Not by works, by faith alone. In Genesis 3.15, in fact, God preached the gospel to Adam and Eve right after they sinned. Remember, he told them about the coming Savior, the seed of the woman who would deliver them and the rest of God's people from the guilt of sin and from the grip of Satan. The only way ungodly Adam and ungodly Eve could be declared righteous in that moment, the only way they could be rescued from the condemnation that they had just put themselves under was by trusting in God's promise to save them through that seed of the woman. Salvation was by faith alone for Adam just as it was for Abraham and David and just as it is for you. And just as it will be for the final person to be saved before Christ returns. No one is saved apart from faith. No one is saved except by faith. Now, so these last several weeks, we've been soaking in the richest spiritual marinade there is. It, it doesn't get any more important than Paul's gospel here in Romans. The, the righteousness and forgiveness that God gives you when you believe in His Son, Jesus Christ, is the supreme blessing. The best gift. <clears throat> it's the blessing of getting what you least deserve and simultaneously it's the blessing of not getting what you most deserve. In verses 6 and 7, Paul sets forth positively the blessing of getting by faith alone what you least deserve. Then in verse 8, he sets forth negatively the blessing of not getting what you most deserve, also by faith alone. And in both parts, verses 6 and 7 and then verse 8, both parts, Paul talks about, and I'm going to use a fancy word here, but then we're going to talk about it. He's talking about imputation. In verse 6, the blessing is positive imputation. The imputation of Christ's righteousness to your account. In verse 8, the blessing is negative imputation. The non-imputation of your unrighteousness to your account. So positive imputation is imputation of Christ's righteousness to your account. Negative imputation is the non-imputation of your unrighteousness to your account. And you need both of these imputations to be saved. And this passage covers both. Let me reread verses 6 and 7, and then we'll consider the blessing of getting what you don't deserve at all. On the outline, I put the blessing of getting what you least deserve 
to kind of have it match there, but, but it's more accurate to call it the blessing of getting what you don't deserve at all. Verse 6, likewise David also speaks of the blessedness of the person to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. And then Paul goes on to quote from David in Psalm 32, verse 1. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, David says, and whose sins are covered. So you don't, you don't deserve the, the blessing of positive imputation, but by faith in Jesus, you get it at no cost to you. So what is, what is this thing? What, what is positive imputation? And why is it a blessing to have it? Imputation, and what I'm calling positive imputation, the imputation of, of God's righteousness, Positive imputation is the deposit of God's infinite righteousness into your spiritual bank account. And that's what happens to everyone who is in union with Christ, who is united to Christ, connected to Christ by faith in Him. The key phrase here in verse 6 is God credits righteousness. David speaks of the blessedness of the person to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Apart from anything you ever did, God, by His grace, as a gift to you, counted His own righteousness, which was manifested in His Son's righteous life and obedient death. He counted His own righteousness as your righteousness. He put an infinite deposit, an infinite credit into your spiritual account. Now, if you, do, if you look up one verse in the previous verse, at the end of verse 5, there on your handout or in your Bibles, Paul says that the believer's faith is counted for righteousness. Okay, you see that? Now, the verb counted in verse 5 and the verb credited in verse 6 are the same exact word in the Greek. Okay, so when we translate this word into English, sometimes it works better in our language is to translate it counted or imputed. And other times it makes a little bit more sense to render it credited. Okay? But there, it's the same word. And Paul's point here is that the way in which you receive this infinite credit into your account, this infinite righteousness, is through faith in Jesus. But we need to talk about that. We talked a little bit about it last time. Don't make the mistake of thinking that your faith is your righteousness. Okay? It's a stand-in, and God counts it as righteous. But it's, it, it's not your righteousness. Your faith, just to be blunt, isn't righteous. It's not made out of titanium or pure gold, as you know when you look at your life. Right? It's, it's not any sturdier or holier than the rest of you. So it's, it's, it's not, it doesn't have within itself the kind of righteousness that can stand before God and be declared righteous by its own merits. That's just not the kind of righteousness that your faith is able to produce. Your, your faith is just as racked with sin as you are. Right? Your, your faith is a 
is a manifestation of who you are. It's as weak and wobbly as you are. It ebbs and flows right along with the rest of your spiritual journey. Your faith is not the source of your righteousness. It is not the ground of your righteousness before God. If it was, it would be game over for you and me. No, the source of your righteousness is the righteousness of God. Your faith is simply what grabs hold of God's righteousness. It apprehends Christ and his righteousness. And when it grabs a hold of it, the righteousness of God in Christ is credited to your account. Now, preachers have come up with various ways to illustrate the difference between the righteousness that God gives to believers on the one hand and the faith that grabs hold of that righteousness on the other hand. One illustration is that of a chair. And I'll, uh, I'll use the pews here. You're all sitting on pews right now, most of you. And these pews are, are holding you up commendably. You're, you're sitting in a pew because you have faith that it will hold you up. Right? If, if you didn't think it would hold you up, you probably wouldn't have sat in it. Your faith in the pew is what got you to sit down in the first place. And yet, and yet, it's not your faith in the pew that's holding you off the ground right now, is it? What's holding you up off the ground right now? The pew, right. The pew is what's holding you up. So even if your faith in the pew is weak, if you're constantly worried that it's going to collapse under you, the pew's still going to hold you up just as well as it's holding you up now and the person next to you. The pew will not falter just because your faith in it might falter. The sturdiness of the pew has nothing to do with the sturdiness of your faith in the pew. The pew remains strong when your faith in it is weak. So there are two people sitting on a pew together. One's faith in the pew is strong, but the person sitting next to him is a worrywart who thinks the pew is going to crumble underneath him any minute now. Okay? So think of those two people. Now, under, under which one of these two people is the pew going to crumble? Neither one. It's, it's going to hold them both up. The one with strong faith and the one with weak faith, just the same. Their safety isn't dependent on the quality and strength of their faith. It depends on the quality and strength of the object of their faith. In this case, the pew. Another illustration, two women are riding next to each other on a very reliable airplane with solid engines, full tanks of fuel, and two top-notch pilots at the helm. The first woman is sleeping soundly in her seat because she has full confidence in the aircraft and, and its operators. Well, the other woman, she, she barely had enough faith to get on the, on the plane in the first place. She's not, she's not even con fully convinced at this point that she made the right decision despite the promise of seeing her grandchildren when, if, 
the plane lands safely. And she certainly can't believe the woman next to her has the audacity to sleep on a 50-ton hunk of metal suspended from nothing and supported by nothing at 30,000 feet in the air. Do you not care that we are perishing, she wants to say. Well, which one of these two women is going to die in a plane crash? Neither one. The woman with strong faith is going to land and the woman with weak faith. And the woman with strong faith is, is not going to land any more safely than the woman with weak faith. Landing safely at their common destination doesn't depend at all on the quality of their faith. It depends 100% on the quality of the object of their faith, the plane. Perhaps you see the point. The quality and strength of your faith is not what saves you. And, and I'm not arguing here for weak faith, right? I'm not, we're not settling for weak faith here. That's not the point of this sermon or this text. The point is that what saves you is the quality and strength of the object of your faith, Jesus Christ. God freely imputes His righteousness to every believer, no matter how sturdy or weak their faith in Jesus is. And, and this is a great comfort. This is not a license to sin or to have weak faith. It's a comfort to those of us whose faith is often weak and wobbly. Jesus is sturdier than the pew you're sitting on. He's more reliable than the most dependable airplane. And a mere seed, mustard seed of living faith in Christ, a, a microscopic amount of evangelical faith puts you inside Him. Just as the woman's wavering, barely existent faith put her inside the plane that got her to the other side of the country where her grandkids were. A little bit of waffling faith gets you all the way into Christ and takes you all the way to the celestial city. A tiny seed of rickety faith in Jesus means that all the righteousness of God has been credited to your account. It's not the worth of your faith that matters, but the worth of faith's object. And if the object of your faith is the crucified and risen Lord, then everything you need to be right with God has been given to you, reckoned to you, imputed to you, counted as yours. It's been credited to your account. The other blessing you get that you don't deserve is the atonement for your sin. Verse 7 says, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Now the verb forgiven in this verse means to be sent away. It's the same word that Matthew uses in chapter 13 when he says that Jesus sent the crowd away so that he could talk privately with his disciples. This word carries with it the idea of separation. When God forgives your sins, He sends them far away from you. He separates you from your transgressions and guilt. Psalm 103 says that God removes your transgressions from you as far as the east is from the west. 
Micah 7 says that God cast your sins into the deepest part of the ocean. When God nailed your sins to the cross, He created an infinite chasm, an infinite divide between you and your sins. Hebrews 9.28 says that Christ was sacrificed once to bear the sins of many, including your sins. 1 Peter 2.24, Christ bore our sins in His body on the tree. Okay, they, they are in Him and not in you now on your account. The hymn writer put it this way. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, the whole of my sin, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. What God actually did with the whole of your sin is even better than throwing it into the bottom of the sea. He covered all of your iniquities with His own righteousness. His own infinitely worthy righteousness. So that your scarlet sins are as white as snow. Your crimson transgressions are as white as wool. Another hymn, Lord Jesus For this I most humbly entreat. I wait, blessed Lord, at thy crucified feet. By faith, for my cleansing I see thy blood flow. Now wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Whiter than snow, yes, whiter than snow. Wash me, now wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. All people, everywhere, and at all times, long for the red rebellion to be covered. Their red rebellion to be covered so that it's whiter than snow. It's what we all long for. It's what we all need. When Adam and Eve transgressed God's law, they knew almost sort of instinctively, right, that their sin needed to be covered. So they tried to cover it themselves. They, they, they sewed fig leaves together to cover their shame. But they still, after that, had to hide from God as if that's possible because they had no covering. When David committed adultery with Bathsheba and got her pregnant, he covered his sin with more sin by murdering Uriah. Right? He's trying to... That was David's version of sewing fig leaves together to, to cover his nakedness. We can't, you know, people can't find this out. But like Adam and Eve, David couldn't hide from God. He couldn't get rid of the guilt. In verses 7 and 8, Paul quotes the first two verses of Psalm 32, Psalm of David, as we've already read. But the following verses that he doesn't quote, and just another reminder, by the way, when you see in the New Testament a quote of the Old, know that it's more like a, it's more like a footnote than it is a, a quotation. What they're wanting you to do is to go back and read that verse in context because they just don't have the space to do the whole thing. So they sometimes just give you a little bit. And, and so generally, that's what we need to do to get the full meaning. And it, it's very helpful in this case if we go back to Psalm 32 and, and read the following verses because they're also important, because David goes on to testify to the futility of trying to cover his own sin. I mean, he's, he's, you know, he starts out talking about the blessedness of being forgiven and not having your sin imputed to you. But he goes on in, in verse 3, David says, 
for when I was silent, not confessing, not dealing with my sin, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Some of you are experiencing that. You, you, you're experiencing the groaning and the wasting away of keeping your sin silent, of not dealing with your sin as you ought. Not confessing it and turning away from it, forsaking it. And those things go together. True confession leads to true repentance and forsaking of sins. And some of you are wasting away and groaning the way David was because you're not doing that in certain areas where you ought to. God's hand is heavy on you and your spiritual strength is dried up as by the heat of summer because you're trying to cover your sin with fig leaves or trying to deal with it some other way instead of by Christ's blood. And the way that we access Christ's blood is by faith, by turning from our sins and turning to Christ, forsaking our sins and putting our trust in Jesus. Those are the things that happen when we are being covered by the blood of Jesus. But listen to what David says in the next three verses, verses 5 to 7, Psalm 32. This is what, this is what he eventually does. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. By the way, it's not 100%. Uh, we, we don't know 100% what David is referring to, but almost certainly he's talking here about the sin with Bathsheba and his murder of Uriah. So Psalm 51 and Psalm 32 both are David's confessions and psalms that he wrote after his repentance okay verse 6 therefore let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found then verse 7 he says this you are a hiding place for me okay remember adam and eve hid now david is saying after he said you know I, i'm not covering my iniquity anymore and now he's saying you are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. So David finally found relief. He, he, he eventually rediscovered the joy of God's salvation. And it happened when he stopped covering his iniquity, when he stopped being silent, when he confessed his transgressions to the Lord, when he stopped hiding from God and started hiding in God when he forsook his sin and ran to God. So did you hear that at the beginning of verse 7? You are my hiding place. That's the covering that God provides for those who seek for cover in him. So do, so do you need to come out of hiding? Are you hiding in the wrong spot? Do you need to get rid of the fig leaves and come clean to God. And until the covering of your sin is the blood of Christ, your bones will continue to rot and you'll continue to feel the heavy hand of God pressing you down day and night. David not only got 
what he didn't deserve. He also experienced the blessing of not getting what he most deserved. Remember, he deserved exactly what Adam and Eve deserved the moment they sinned. But he not only got the positive imputation of God's righteousness, David says, he he also got the non-imputation of his unrighteousness. He received the blessing of what I'm calling negative imputation. Verse 8, Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not ever count against him. The pivotal word in Romans 4, I think, did I say last week it's used 11 times? To go back and look. The, the key, the pivotal word shows up again in this verse. We're going we're gonna to keep seeing it. It's the word count. We've already talked about it. This is the fourth time Paul used it. It appeared in verse 3, which says that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. It was used in verse 5, which says that the faith of a believer is counted for righteousness. You know, we could say imputed as right. And then in verse 6, Paul refers to the blessedness of the person to whom God credits righteousness, same Greek word. Well, those are all positive uses of the term. That means impute, reckon, credit, count as. All three of those verses describe the blessing of positive imputation. Imputation of God's righteousness to the spirit, your spiritual bank account as a sinner. But here in verse 8, which is a quotation from Psalm 32:2, David is celebrating the blessing of negative imputation non-imputation of sin to your account. And this is possibly, this verse, this truth, this reality, is possibly the most comforting verse in the whole Bible. It occurred to me as I was meditating, meditating on it this week. And if we really understand it and appreciate it, it's got to be the most comforting verse in the whole Bible. What could be more comforting then knowing that not one of your previous sins, not one of your present sins, not one of your future sins will ever be accounted against you in God's courtroom, in God's heavenly law court. When you put your faith in Jesus, when you put yourself inside of Christ the way the woman the women put themselves inside the plane. God removes every sin from your sin ledger so that not one of your transgressions, iniquities, and sins gets reckoned against your account. God's promise in Jeremiah 31, 34 is I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. God has made a promise to forget your sins. He promises to remember them no more. These are great promises, and they're supported by the even greater truth that God has dealt with your sins, your wickedness, and the cross of Christ. That's the support for this. That's the foundation for all of this. That's why it's, it would be too good to be true apart from the cross. The cross makes it possible, makes it true. All of your iniquities have been punished on the cross. Your sins were counted to Jesus. So they weren't counted to you, but they had to be counted somewhere 
right? If, if you think of an, of an accountant, when you, you know, I, I don't know how all the debits and credits always work. That always confuses me. But you can't just take something off, right? It's got to go somewhere. The books have to balance, right? And, and the way God balances the books is he doesn't impute it to you. He doesn't count it to you. He counted it to Jesus. They were, your sins were put in his account, and he paid for them in full with his blood. That's how they were paid for, in his blood. So there's no greater blessing than the blessing of not ever again being counted as a sinner. Just think about that. Let it sink in. Not by faith in Jesus, not ever again. That phrase, not ever, in verse 8, that's how I translated it. Uh, is the, it's actually the translation of two words that both mean not. Two different words, little small words that mean not. And so it's, it's, it's a double negative. In Greek, if you want to emphasize a negative, you, you use a double negative. And, and so literally, verse 8, blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not not count against him. Now in English, a double negative makes a positive. I think there's a joke that was going around in my house. If I'd have remembered it, I would have told it, but, uh, you know, about the different languages and double negatives. But, but, in, but not in Greek. It's, it doesn't work. So some translations say, whose sin the Lord will never count against him. The point is that the non-imputation of your sin is eternal. God forgets your sins forever and ever. And so never means never. Not ever means not ever. Now, but, but, so we get that in our heads. I've said that many times. But it's hard to accept. And that's why I'm going to say it a whole lot more as, as long as I'm in this pulpit. Because it isn't how our brains work. It's not what comes next. In fact, it's not the way most human relationships work. So we don't experience this normally. Even in Christian relationships. We've all experienced the kind of forgiveness, quote, forgiveness, end quote, that remembers the offense and then eventually throws it back in our faces at opportune times. Husbands and wives sometimes do this, right? Sins that were confessed and supposedly forgiven get brought back up in the heat of an argument. Past misdeeds are presented as evidence of just how wretched the other person is. But God doesn't do that. He, he won't ever count your sins against you in any form or fashion. He will never throw your sins back in your face. That's Satan's job. He's the accuser. So husbands and wives and brothers and sisters, when you heatedly remind your spouse or your sibling of wrongdoings and offenses that God has forgiven, when you remember transgressions that God has forgotten, you're doing the devil's work. The promise of God is that those who believe in Jesus get what they least deserve. In fact, they get what they don't deserve at all. They get the righteousness of God credited or imputed to their account. 
Their lawless deeds are forgiven and their sins are covered by the blood of Jesus. The promise of God is that those who believe in Jesus don't get what they most deserve, which is eternal punishment for, the dep- for their depravity and iniquities. Their sins are not counted against them and never will be in God's law court. They'll never be considered a sinner again. So these are God's promises. And saving faith trusts in these promises of God. Simple, straightforward promises. And saving faith is simple, straightforward faith in these promises. Saving faith isn't heroic faith. It's not the faith that does great and mighty things for the Lord. The kind of things that make the, the newspaper or the Christian magazines or the websites. It's often weak faith that wobbles and wavers. Oftentimes it's faith that barely gets on the plane. But the good news is that it doesn't take much faith to receive all the blessings and promises in today's passage. That's how gracious God is. This, this, this is about God's grace. That's what I want us to see is the graciousness of God, the open-handedness of God in spite of our very, very imperfect faith. The person with sturdy faith doesn't get more forgiveness, more imputation of righteousness, more covering of, of sins, more of God's merciful forgetfulness than the person with faltering faith. The believer who barely has enough faith to abide in Christ will reach the same destination as the believer whose faith regularly moves mountains into the sea. The person with more faith doesn't need less of God's righteousness credited to his account, nor does he get more of it. He he doesn't need less of Christ, and he doesn't get any more of Christ. And so, what's what's the main takeaway from this passage? Everyone always wants to know, what's the text require of me? What does God want me to do in light of the truth in this passage? Well, here it is. Relax because you are perfect in Christ. Rest easy because in God's heavenly courtroom, you've been declared a righteous, sinless saint. And this is a reality, not just playing games. God doesn't view you as a sinner, okay, in in the way that matters. When he looks at you in his courtroom, when you're, you know, declaring who you are and what you are and what you get, he doesn't look at you as a sinner. In his presence, you're as righteous as the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you believe that? It's not a legal fiction. It's not a word game. It's not, it's not make-believe. We, you know, it's not just something that, we, that we're supposed to imagine is true when we know it's not in reality. It's not just a technical kind of thing. Now, the reason it's real is because your union with Christ by faith alone is real. And because the righteousness of Christ is very real. And because that union is real, what's his is really yours, truly yours. And what's yours is his. 
and everything is paid for. Everything is settled. It's not, it's not cooking the books or pencil whipping something. There's nothing truer than the fact that you stand before God as a perfect law keeper. All of Christ's righteousness has been credited to you and none of your sins have been imputed to you. And God's promise that you're supposed to believe, God's promise is that this is true of every person who has faith in Jesus. And if your faith in God's promises is weak and faltering, if your faith in Jesus is as racked with sin as everything else in you is, and you can be sure that it is, the good news is that even the sinfulness of your faith is covered by the blood of Jesus. And the Lord will not ever count it against you. Believe the promises of God. Let's pray. Oh God, impress upon our hearts more and more the glory and the beauty and the extravagance of your grace in Jesus. Help us to understand it and to believe it so that we know and believe you better, more, with more depth, with more spiritual insight, with more wisdom, with more understanding. Oh Lord, we need you to accomplish this in us. We, we believe, but help our unbelief. We ask for this in the name of Jesus, for his sake. Amen.